March 22nd of 2014, in the early morning hours, 15 million cubic feet of mud and debris slipped off the side of a hillside near Oso, Washington. It eventually buried 50 homes and 43 lives. The, the next day, or maybe two days later, the, the county uh, commissioner, the safety director, spoke to the press and said this, quote, this was a completely unforeseen slide. This came out of nowhere, end quote. Go back with me 19 years before that event. 19 years earlier, 1995, a man named uh, uh, Daniel Miller was a geologist in uh, Seattle, and he made his first trip to Oso, Washington. And he was there to do studies on the logging practices and in an area that it rains on average every other day. It was certainly uh, potential for these slides, and he did a study on them to hopefully predict and warn and avoid a catastrophe. Well, it took him four years, so in 1999, he turned in his report to the U.S. Geological Society in which he said within that report that the hillsides around Oso were likely to have a, quote, large catastrophic failure. Jump forward a little bit more to 2006, and there was a big slide in that area. Now that slide came down and it hit a a dam and and it never went over and so there was no loss of life, no loss of property per se, but boy, it alerted everyone, you know, we need to pay attention to this. And so they had county meetings, they had assessments, they talked about what can we do uh, to prepare to avoid this. But in the end, uh, building permits continued to be given and people continued to build their homes on the hillside. The truth is that the devastating mudslide of 2014 was not completely unforeseen. It was not a total surprise. In fact, the moment it happened was a surprise. But that it was going to happen was not at all. Y'all, as we're working our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, all but two of these churches get a warning, a dire warning. That though things look sort of okay up here, there are forces at work down here that you can't see now, but will lead to devastation. Now, the letter that we're going to read today, of course, was written to a church, literal church, that was some some 2,000 years ago, but I've said this before, Michael said it, Bill said it, we'll say it over and over These letters are written to us. And I'm going to tell you, having been in the passage for this week, I do believe it's a warning as relevant to us as the warnings to Oso Washington were years before that mudslide. We speak of warnings at Ephesus. It was, you know, you have lost your first love. Remember that? Talked about this two weeks ago that their Christian life had become duty rather than delight. They had become very good at the activities of faith, but they were not doing it out of the affections of the heart. 
And then last week, Michael took us to the church at Smyrna. Now, interestingly, this is one of the churches that did not get a rebuke. And he showed us why, because it was his church that suffered well. And you remember, the, the exhortation to them was that your suffering is not ignored. Your suffering, uh, Jesus says, I, I see it and it will be rewarded. Michael said it this way, they were called to eternal hope amid temporal despair. And now the carrier of this letter, you see, think about it ge- geographically, we're in you know, modern day Turkey, they, he hits the coast there at Ephesus, he goes north to Smyrna, he now goes north another 40, 50 miles, the Aegean Sea is right here, and then he turns right and he heads east about 12 miles, and he has come to the city of Pergamum. Last week, you received a handout. Y'all pull that out, the handout, if you have it. You remember that outlines the book and shows you how the stories are outlined. If you don't have one, you can grab one when you leave outside. But this is our outline for every letter. And you notice the top bandwidth on that says each letter begins with Christ as. This is Christ's character. This is who he is. And then there is a commendation, doing a good job. But then there's a rebuke. Then there's the exhortation. And then there is the promise. That's going to be our outline today. But before I dive into the specific outline and the specifics of the letter, I'm going to give us a very quick overview of the city of Pergamum. And the reason is, y'all, and we're not spending a whole lot of time on this. We'll spend more on different letters than others. But every letter has this unique flavor. It's, It's connected to the geography, the culture, now, in our own vernacular, if I can say it way, the vibe, the spirit of the city. Every letter's got a very specific intent, and it's connected to that specific city. Let me show you a picture of Pergamum today. Look up on the slide screen. Pergamum was built on a big old rock that just rose out of the plain. How many of you have been to, or you've seen from a distance, Stone Mountain, Georgia? Literally, raise your hand. You know, those of us who have, you know, if you're in Atlanta, you're just outside and you're driving along and you look over, there's this big hump on the horizon, this giant, this thing rose up a thousand feet. Stone Mountain's about 1,600. But the big granite rock out there just sitting on the flat plain, that's what you would see as you approach Pergamum. Now, we're looking down at the hilltop, okay? You with me? On the hilltop was the Acropolis. This is the top of the hill. See, this drops straight down. By the way, it's an amphitheater. But the hilltop is the Acropolis. It's shaped like this, top of the hill. The Acropolis was the walled part of a Greek city. So, you know, if you're in the Acropolis, you're in a palace, you're in the great stuff, you're in the beautiful ruin, you know, all those things in the Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis at Pergamum held a number of temples. This is the main one I want you to think about. This is the temple of Trajan. So this is the temple of Caesar. This is where you went and gave your incense and said, Caesar is Lord. Okay? Temple of Trajan. If you went to the right, in this area, there was a library. The library at Pergamum was the second largest library in antiquity, only surpassed by the library in Alexandria. It was 200,000 volumes in this library. You talk about learning and access to this. Amazing here at Pergamum in the day this, this letter's going on. And then if you went a little more to the right, there's going to be the temple of Athena. Now, Athena is the goddess of wisdom. Need wisdom? You go talk to Athena. If you went a little further to the right, right on this part of the top of the hill would have been the temple to Zeus. 
You know who Zeus is? Zeus is the god of gods. Zeus is the big guy upstairs. Zeus is the one that keeps all the other gods in order, so to speak. It's what they believed and how they worshipped. If you went down here, this area right here, a little rectangular building that would rise right here was the Temple of Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus was the, the, uh, the god of wine, uh, the god of festival, the god of ecstasy. Okay? And then uh, around the top of the hill, it would be somewhere down in this area around here, there was another temple, and I'll, I'm not going to show it to you. Well, I'll show it to you in a moment, the, uh, which was the, the temple of Asclepios, the temple of Asclepios. And Asclepios was the god of healing. Okay? So, so here's this, this, this city with, with all of these temples that you could go to. Now, they took great pride in the temple of Trajan because in 29 BC, they were the first city to be allowed to build a temple to a living emperor. I mean, there's a ton of pride in that. You know, you have to worship the emperor's God. You remember Domitian is ruling at the time of this letter. Do you know how Domitian required to be addressed? My Lord and my God, our Lord and our God. You see, you worship him as God. Uh, at the Asclepios, um, well, show the other slide, and then I'll get to the Asclepios. This next slide, this is a drawing. Now, I want you to keep the same orientation, okay? So looking at it, we're looking up at the hill now, but this would, this would be the temple of what? Trajan. This is the, see what I'm saying, the top left of that hill? That's what it is right there, Temple of Trajan, Temple of Athena, Temple of Zeus, Temple of Dionysus. And then down in this area would have been the Temple of Asclepios. Now, I want to show you this picture of the Temple of Asclepios. This is modern day, uh, the uh, Asclepios. And, you know, if you look at one of these columns, in this column here, see all these squiggly lines and stuff, ribbons? You know, those, by the way, it's not roots, it's not vines. Do you know what those squiggly lines are on the Temple of Asclepios? Anybody? Snakes. Yeah, you've, you've looked this stuff up. Google it. You can see it, you know. But it's snakes, because at this hospital, hospital healing center, what, what they would do is you'd get in a trance-like state and they would kind of put you a little bit where you're going to really sleep well. And if you're really ill, you'd sleep within the confines of the temple of Asclepios. And that temple was full of non-poisonous snakes, as if that comforts me at all, right? <laughs> They're non-poisonous. You can sleep in there. So you sleep in there, and if they touch you or crawl over your body, they believe that's how you were healed, which is why everybody in the room, you know, is in the medical field. You got the little emblem on your shirt for medicine. What's on it? The, the serpents, right? This goes all the way back to Asclepius. Now, can you imagine living in Pergamum? What if you grew up in Pergamum? I've got to believe, quite frankly, if you're Roman, whatever, pagan, you don't know the God, but if you grew up there, you'd think this is amazingly cool. This is a great city to grow up in. Everything I need to live healthy, wealthy, and wise is at my disposal, right? I mean, honestly, you've got to worship Caesar. You've got the first temple. This is amazing. I go right up the hill and bow to Caesar. You need, uh, you know, if you, you're learned, you've got educational opportunities, you've got, you got a 200,000 volume library available to you. You need wisdom. I mean, it's right here, the temple of Athena, go and you can get your wisdom. If, if you've got a problem with other gods, which they did, because you know what? This God's doing something to my crops or this God's messing up my relationship. You go to who? 
Zeus. I mean, you go to Zeus, worship him, he'll take care of that. If you're, if you're just down and not happy and, you know, you just want to party, quite literally a little, you go to Dionysus, festivals and ecstasy. And if you were sick and people got sick in that day, this was the world-class hospital. Snakes and all, you see, that you could go get well. Now, think about it. It's, it's like living in a city that has the state capital, that has universities and libraries accessible to all, where you can get wisdom when you need it. There's religious activity and buildings all over the city, and religion is normal. And quite frankly, it's a foodie town. You know, there's awesome food and wine. And if you're sick, you actually live in a city where there are hospitals all over and many on the cutting edge of healthcare. What a city. I'm not making this stuff up. But how about this? You grow up in that city and one day you start hearing about a, a prophet named Jesus. And this little group is meeting and you start to meet with them and you come to understand that all those gods on top of the hill, they're not gods. That there's one true God and that we've offended that God by our sin and rebellion. But the one true God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place. So as Dr. Ahmad Shahada told us, you know, in, in, in Christianity, God dies for us. In other religions, you die for God. No, God died for us, paid the penalty for our sin. And if a person believes that Jesus was the son of God, lived, died, and rose again for them, then, then you are a son of God too and you will be with the one true God forever and you can live your life worshiping the one true God. And how about this? You've come to faith in Jesus in Pergamum. Can you imagine how hard it's gonna be to live that faith out? Really? Can you imagine? All your friends and family, your business, everything, Everyone's in the temples all the time. And now to you, they're nothing. I have to believe when they got this letter from John and the messenger said it's a letter from Jesus himself, they were ready. If you have your Bibles open, if you don't, please open them to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The letter to the angel church in Pergamum write the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, excuse me, repent 
or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. May we have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us. I'm going to go through the outline, Christ as, commendation, etc., moving all the way through. We'll hit Christ as quickly, verse 12. Christ's character, the one who has the two-edged sword, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Don't turn there, but in Revelation 19, 15, we read of Christ at his second coming, and it says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is the same sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. It's the word of God. Think of Hebrews. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, It's the word of judgment though, you see. The word of judgment. It's got two blades. It cuts two ways. The judgment falls and if you're in Christ, the judgment brings life. But it cuts two ways and if you're not in Christ, the judgment brings death. It's a sobering statement, (laughs) and it immediately gets their attention as it does ours. The commendation, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and then the sentence ends where Satan dwells. Now, as I walked you through Pergamum, I think we would all agree and look at that place and go, Satan's all over that hill. Well, in a sense, sure, you know, in those institutions, etc., But we really do think that the focus here is probably on Trajan's temple. And for a couple of reasons. One would be uh, the power exerted there. This was the power really against the church. And I want to show you a picture here of the throne that was within that temple. This is in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. In the early 1900s, Germany went over there and took the thing out. And they put it in their own museum. It's in Berlin today. I want you to look at the size of that thing. Almost throne-like even in its look, isn't it? Well, certainly meant to demonstrate the power of Rome. And by the way, and you can take that down, the power was in this. The, the, the Roman proconsul, the, the, the leader of the state, the Roman state appointed by Rome, had his residence in Pergamum. And he also was given what's called the right of the sword. This is probably why Jesus talks about sword, sword. The right of the sword was given to this man such that if he decided you need to die, then you die. I'm I'm kid you not. So you give me a problem, Hal, I kill you. And I don't have to ask anyone. I don't have to get, there's no jury. Think about Antipas. Why do you think Antipas died? Because he probably didn't bow the knee to, to, to Caesar. And he was killed for that. William Barclay helps us, I think, some here. And he writes this, quote, It was the place where men were required on the pain of death to take the name Lord and give it to Caesar instead of Christ. And to a Christian, there could be nothing more satanic than that. Now, others uh, were faithful witnesses and uh, they did not die. Jesus says of them, you hold fast my name. 
to hold fast the name of Christ is to cling to all that Jesus is. Notice he also says, and you didn't deny my faith. What does he mean by that? The body of truth I taught. My name, the body of truth I taught, you, 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 you held fast. You guys have, I don't know if you've been, maybe you experienced this, but if you've ever been in an ice skating rink and someone doesn't know how to skate, you know, just, you know, and, and how do they skate around the rink? Well, I, you know, this is what I do and others do is you, you go and you stay close to the railing, don't you? But if you really don't know how to skate at all, you don't go like this along the railing. What do you do? <laughs> you just, you cling, uh-uh, you know, you cling as if your life depended on it, so to speak. That's the, the intensity of this. They clung to the name, all that Jesus is, not just Jesus, the, the name of Jesus, all he said, the body of truth he taught, they clung to as if their life depended on it. Scott Duvall uh, tells us a bit about this faithful witness and, and, and what that meant in that day. By the way, when he called Antipas a faithful witness, and I think many of you know this, the word witness is martus, from which we get the word martyr, right? But y'all, in the day, if, if you were a martyr, it just meant you, you were someone who spoke of Jesus. But so many were getting killed, it finally became to mean, well, if we say it like today, martyr, it's, it's someone who's died for speaking of Jesus. Duvall says this, it's important for people to understand what a faithful witness is and is not. It is not that we relate well to the world. Very key when we get to application in a moment. Living and verbalizing the gospel lies at the heart of this particular message at the book of Revelation and the entirety of the New Testament, end quote. So faithful witness is one who's, who's living, there's behavior here, there's living as one who holds to Christ and verbalizing. You see that? That's faithful witness. To live in such a way, y'all, honestly, that people actually hear from your lips what you believe about Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about what it would cost someone in Pergamum to live that way based on everything we know about Pergamum. I'm going to tell you, they were misunderstood. They were ostracized. They were persecuted, many punished. Antipas gave his life. Those who didn't die, it cost them financially, socially, relationally. It just cost in every arena. I can't, you can't imagine one where it wouldn't. If you were a faithful witness. How about the rebuke in verses 14 and 15? It says there were some in the church who rather than holding fast to Christ are holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I'm going to combine, I think we can, Balaam and, and, and the Nicolaitans similar maybe in what they taught. But I think what's interesting is that he begins with Jesus about you hold fast to Jesus and notice the word choice. Some of you are what? Holding to what the Nicolaitans teach and Balaam. Now, what in the world is this? Balaam kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. I do want you to raise your hand on this. If you don't raise your hand, it's totally okay, but I'd like to know how many of you know the story in Numbers 22 and 24. If you don't, you gotta read this thing, but I'm gonna tell you about it. Uh, Spoiler alert. But um, how many of you know the story of Balaam and Balak? Seriously, a lot of us, a lot of us don't. You know, it's wonderful. I can tell you this, but I wanna encourage you to read it. Okay, the the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. There's two million people 
And I'm telling you, when they move, they've taken everything that's in front of them. God's defeating kings in front of them. Why? Because God's bringing them to the promised land. The king of Moab is standing on a hill, and he looks down at the plains of Moab, and how would you feel if you saw two million people, and you thought to yourself, they're coming for me. <laughs> they're coming to take my stuff. They're coming to take... They've been defeating kings, all that. Well, the wise king that he is, he decides to go hire a prophet. Now, in the New Testament, New Testament says nothing good about Balaam. So you've got to be careful how you read it in the Old Testament. He goes and hires a prophet named Balaam. And, and Balaam has all these words about God and everything. But boy, you've got to watch it because under the waterline, it's not what you think it is. And Balaam's not going to go. And then God says, well, you can go. And Balaam's going along to go meet Balak so he can curse the Israelites. Because he thinks if we can curse them, we can beat them. Balaam's going along. And this is the funny part of the story. You know, he's on a donkey. Balaam's on a donkey going along. The donkey's been his donkey his whole life. The donkey comes to a place where the trail gets very narrow. There's a wall. There's only one passageway through, and the donkey stops. And the donkey's bumping him up against the wall. Have y'all ridden horses that take advantage of you? They take advantage of me every time I ride one. You know, they rub me up against trees. And, and, and literally, Balaam is like kicking the donkey. He's beating the donkey. Come on, go. What are you doing? You know, whatever. And, and the donkey says, why are you hitting me? And Balaam says, because you won't, go. I mean, this is, is this like a cartoon? Because you're not going through. And, and, the donk, and then God opens Balaam, uh, Balaam's eyes, and what does he see? There's an angel in that spot with a sword ready to take his life. The donkey says, I'm saving your life, and you're beating me. Amazing story. He goes through. He gets to Balak. Balak says, come here, Balaam. I want you to curse all these people. He sets him up on a hill and looks down on him, but God won't let him do it. And Balaam blesses Israel. Balak says, we got a problem. Let me show you another angle. Takes him to another side. Here, look at this side of him. Take a look now. Now curse him and God won't let him and he blesses. Three times this happens. And then it's kind of like, that's it. I mean, the end of the story, God, you know, God won't let him curse him. But it's really not the end of the story. I do want you to turn in your Bibles back to the very beginning, the book of Numbers, chapter 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 25. I really want you to, to, to take a look at this. So the, this is the end of the story of Balaam, so to speak. If you get to Numbers 25, I want you to look first at verse 25 of chapter 24. So it's right above 25. It says, then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place and Balak went away. So it's like, okay, he's not going to do it. So they part ways. But notice what happens. Chapter 25, verse one. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Israel. They began to intermingle, cohabitate, have sex with, engage. They, They begin to, here's the problem. God's people have always been called to be a distinct people, right? This is, the, this is going to get to our application in a moment, to be distinct from the world for the good of the world. But now they commingle. Verse 2, for they in, in, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal or Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Now, I want you to notice the progression here. They were invited. Come on. Then what? Then they ate. And then they what? My gosh, then they were bowing down. You see the progression? And then they joined. When we see in the New Testament, join, I always go straight to and a man and woman are joined. And that's the idea. 
They were joined. Why did they do that? Here's the sneaky part. I want you to go to Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. Where we read, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of who? Who? Balaam. Wait, wait. Through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So what we just saw happened in the the plains of Moab, Balaam was behind it. Balaam talked Balak into doing this. Now, what might that have been? I think it could have been something along these lines. Uh, Balaam, by the way, he was paid to curse them. He didn't get, maybe he didn't get paid, but he said, man, I need to get paid. And so he turned to Balak somehow and said, um, look, I can't curse them. And by the way, you can't crush them. But I do know they can crush themselves. And Balak says, well, what are you talking about? He says, look, Here's what you do. You, you take your beautiful virgin daughters and you have them invite these young Israelite men to their temple and let them share a meal and they will engage in that meal and by the way, in worship in those times and many times it involves sex and they'll, and they'll have sex with these virgin daughters and they'll worship their gods and by the way, if, if they'll do that, then their own God will crush them. And that's exactly what happened. So it wasn't the attack of the Moabites, right? What was it that it was the compromise of the Israelites with the world? Fast forward to Pergamum. It's not Rome that's going to crush the church at Pergamum. It's going to be some in the church who compromise biblical truth. Fast forward to the church Brentwood it's not going to be something out there that does us in but it will be some who compromise biblical truth y'all there's forces under our feet what are some of the things that the church at Pergamum paid dearly for. I, I don't know exactly, but I do think we'd be on safe ground if I suggest it, with a few of these suggestions. I would say this. It got really hard to live in that culture and some gave in and some decided, you know what, we can, look, let's take what God says, but let's take what the world says and let's, put, let's blend them. <laughs> See, let's, we, we can keep them both and unfortunately you can't. I would suggest that it was, it was a real battle around the exclusivity of the gospel, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say that, that those who said, you know, look, Jesus is the only way, not everything up on the hill. Uh, I would suggest there was a real battle around the authority of Scripture, the sanctity of marriage, one man and one woman for life. I think the reality of God's judgment and, and the truth of eternal separation, that there will be an eternal separation of those who've bowed the knee to Jesus and those who haven't. And that there's one God, and you know what? All roads and all religions don't lead to that one God. Those are the things tempted to compromise, you see, in that culture. How about the exhortation, verse 16, repent. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on that because it's, you're going this way, repent and go the other way. How about the promise, 
Verse 17, this is interesting. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. What's the hidden manna? This is, let me, we'll start here. What do we know manna is? Because we have historic biblical evidence of this. What's manna? What was it? It's bread of heaven, right? I mean, this is God's, think of, think of it this way. God's provision for his people. This is manna. Okay, um, hidden manna. There's different things that people think around this, but I think we're going to be safer if we just kind of keep it historic and think about it this way. In Numbers 25, when those young men went to dinner with the Moabite girls, I think they went with a manna mustache. What's that white stuff on your lip? Nothing. Nothing. But what was it? God's provision for me. Man, that stew looks good. What do y'all eat here at your temple? (laughs) You see. But he had manna in his beard probably. (laughs) And so what was he saying when he ate with the temple prostitute, the, the, the young girls? He's saying, you know what? I need more than God. Wow, this sounds just like the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Sounds just like us today. I mean, this nothing changes. Right? You remember what Jesus said about the manna? John 6, uh, Jesus, they, they asked, they're talking about Jesus had just fed a bunch of people the bread. And, and uh, Jesus said to, to the crowd, Truly I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And you know what they said? And we, you and I would have said the same thing. Give me some of that bread. And what did Jesus say? I am, I am the bread of life. So what's the hidden manna? It it, it seems to be in some sense, those who overcome, and if you're in Christ, you overcome, that there is a measure of Jesus that awaits us, that we can't fully get this side of heaven. That makes a lot of sense to me. There's more to Jesus than you know what I'm saying? But in, when we see him face to face and we'll nourish ourselves on the Christ who is beyond what we can even imagine. I think that's fairly safe ground. Let me tell you about the uh, white stone and the name on it. I don't know of any safe ground to go to. <laughs> I have no idea. Really, I'm not saying this, exactly what that means. And we gotta say no one really exactly knows what that means, y'all. Study it. You can study it and look it up. I'm telling you, I could go through 12 very academic and scholarly and biblical explanations for it. And and some of them are probably a conglomeration or right, but we don't know. And so the only thing I would offer to you is this. Whatever it was, they knew, right? They aren't gonna get a letter and they're not gonna go, I have no idea what he's talking. And so if we go there, it seems... That, in, you know, in that historic day, there were, uh, the, the people did get a, 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 a stone and they would get a white stone that enabled them to enter a festival or go into, the, you know, they, they, it was, a, it was a, a piece of admittance, if you will. And yes, sometimes it had a name on it, okay? So I think there's some sense of that here. You're gonna, you know, get this to admit. The new name, you know, the name that no one knows but the one who receives it, many people think it's the name of Jesus. And it certainly could be. It could be, could be the name of Christ. Some would say it's, it's a name that a Christian will get, uh, just like you got a name when you were born. You know, this sort of makes sense to me too. You know, there's the, that Jesus knows you better, knows your soul, 
And you get that name in his presence. No one, you know what I'm saying? It's, that's his name for you that knows you. There's part of that gets that. A lot of times we can, we can kind of come up with some things that kind of sound really cool or motivate us. Like, oh my gosh. That's, I, I don't know that that's here. Okay? But it certainly was a motivation for them and can be for us. What I, what I want us to focus upon instead is what we do know. Okay? Here's what we know for sure. Three things. Let me give them to you. First, physical death is not the death that matters. You can read this 10 times. It still says the same thing. Physical death is not the death that matters. Antipas died physical death, but that's not what mattered. What matters is the second death. Always keep in mind, death is the separation of your soul from your body. That's why you look at a casket and you'll say at a funeral, he's not there, she's not there, because that's just the shell that they were in. It matters, it'll be reunited one day, but death is the separation of body and soul. And listen to me, every person looking at me right now, we're all going to die, young and old. No one escapes that, y'all. No one escapes death. That's not the death that matters. The matters is the second death. What's the second death? When your soul is either with the presence of God or in eternal condemnation. That's the second death. And that's forever. Rome assumed they had ultimate power with the right of the sword. Look, you don't pay your taxes. You do something wrong. I can kill you. But the Christians knew that Rome's sword was in fact only opening the door to paradise. That's what it is, y'all. Death for the believer is literally, you're going from literally a life of death to a life of life forever. Physical death is not the death that matters. Secondly, and I'm going to read this because I I couldn't get it in a pithy statement, so to speak, but I want you to get my thought. I think this text gives us, Pergamum, like Smyrna, reveals the paradox of suffering. Here's what I mean. Pergamum is an extremely difficult place to live as a Christian, but a greenhouse for spiritual growth because almost every act of faith cost them something. Nashville is an extremely easy place to live as a Christian, but a desert for spiritual growth because almost every act of faith costs us nothing. Now, the solution for the church at Pergamum was not get out of Pergamum, was it? Jesus didn't say, man, you're in Satan's throne. Get out of there, man. You need to get to, go back to Smyrna. Go somewhere, there's better places. No, it wasn't, that was not the answer. The answer was, hold fast my name, my faith. I I say this probably every three months because it's in the Bible, but I don't, and I always say I don't like it, and it's true. It seems that only when our faith begins to cost us something does our faith actually begin to give us something. I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking about this. It's only when our faith actually begins to cost us 
that our hearts, I believe, really begin to deepen, grow, as we say here, mature in the faith. You begin to experience the fullness of Christ, all that he is. He is our protector, provider. He's all I need. He's my ever. It's like when faith is costing, that, that grows in our hearts. It deepens. We're transformed by the word, the spirit of God. It's a fair question to say, and listen, I'm looking in the mirror when I say this. Does my faith cost me anything? We're not in heaven yet. Last thing I'll say is the light of a church is not extinguished in an instant. It is extinguished by the slow and steady erosion of compromise. This is the story. It's not like it's not like it's gone. It's more like it starts to flicker, 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 flicker. It's extinguished by the slow and steady erosion of of compromise. And so the question for us is, what what, what voices are seducing us? I mean, which temple do we run to when we have a need? Where do we tend to compromise biblical truth in in your life, in in my life? Where Where am I hearing the voice of the Moabite women? What began, you see, with an invitation, right? Begins with an invitation. It proceeds down a path, so to speak, of relating well with the world. Back to Duvall's. But it ends in an utter capitulation to the things of God. The mudslide in Oso, Washington, y'all, it, it was not a surprise. It did. There were warning signs. Uh, technology today, it's interesting, and you know this when they drill oil and all this, but they can shoot stuff down in the ground today and they can see what's under there. It's like they can see where it's coming next, and they did. Lynn Highlands of the U.S. Geological Survey said this during the event of, of Oso. He said, quote, people don't want to know about it or they think it reduces property values if they're in a known hazardous area. I get that. We've been warned. He who has an ear. Hear what the Spirit says to you. Would you bow your heads? I'm going to invite you to reflect for a moment and listen to what the Spirit is saying to you. Father, grant that we would hear what your Spirit says. And heeding what says, we would act. We can't do it on our own. But we trust your Spirit who lives within us to enable us 
to obey, to trust, to walk as a faithful witness. Amen. Let's stand together. I will dismiss you with a word from Paul. And my hope is that as you and I increasingly live the gospel and verbalize the gospel, for these two are what make a faithful witness, that when it gets hard and it costs us, you will remember and be as confident as the Apostle Paul when he wrote this, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God bless.